Hi, I'm Mark Fellows and welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Before we get going this week, just some housekeeping. We started working recently on a social initiative in New York called Back the Neighbourhood. It's a hyper-local initiative to explore ways to knit back the fabric of neighbourhoods damaged by the economic impact of the pandemic and other factors that have been eroding the fabric of neighbourhoods for many years. It's something we plan to scale to other neighbourhoods and other cities. If you can, we'd love you to follow us on Instagram at Back the Neighbourhood or check out backtheneighbourhood.com. Also, we're looking to scale our podcast network. If you do have a podcast that you need help with, reach out to us and email samantha at fabricacollective.com. And finally, if you're looking for help with your digital or brand strategy, we'd love to chat to you. It's what we do outside of the podcast. Okay, now on with the show. Domestically within the US is a direct and systematic attack against transgender rights in particular, and then elevating the idea of religious exemption, um, you know, as a, as a justification for discrimination. And I think one of the things that was emblematic of the Trump period was the Commission on Unalienable Rights that was set up by Mike Pompeo, you know, that really was attempting to set up a kind of hierarchy of rights in which women's rights and LGBT rights were in the bottom rung. Human rights are inextricably linked to identity. We all strive for our basic inalienable rights as human beings, regardless of our race, religion, language, ethnicity or gender. So this week we are honoured to welcome one of the most vital thinkers in academia and advocates for LGBT human rights, Graham Reed. Graham is the director of the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual and Transgender Rights Programme at Human Rights Watch and a respected expert and lecturer at Yale. Born in Johannesburg in apartheid South Africa, he was raised in a politically liberal home. Graham demonstrated his individuality at an early age, courageously confronting the conventional thinking of the white South African educational establishment. Having studied anthropology at university, Graham's groundbreaking masters, an ethnographic study of a black Pentecostal church on how the church community created the possibility for an integrated cultural identity for gay and lesbian Christians, was followed by his PhD thesis, How to Be a Real Gay, Emerging Gay Spaces in Small Town South Africa. This established him as both a creative and leading thinker on gender identity. In the shorter than usual episode, Graham shares his personal story, his wisdom and perspective on where we find ourselves in today's politically charged environment and what might be an inflection point in history for LGBT rights and gender identity. I hope you enjoy the courage, heart and humanity of Graham Reed. Graham, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. Thanks. It's wonderful. It's an absolute pleasure. And I have to give a shout out uh, to the wonderful Mark Gilmore, John Bassnage and Alan Shaw for recommending that we interview you. And it would have been ideally here in New York in person because I know you're based here, but you happen to be somewhere else in Johannesburg. That's right. Yes. I've been here since November. Delightful. But let's kick off. So before we discuss your life focus and in LGBT rights, activism, education, I'd like to understand a bit more about your upbringing and childhood. It sounds like from your accent that you were born in South Africa. That's right. Yes, I was. Near to where you are now in Joburg? Mm-hmm. Born in Johannesburg. So could you talk to us just about, about that upbringing and the influence of your parents on your journey, the direction you've taken in life and the different impact between your mother and father or any other influential individuals in your upbringing? Sure. So I was born in 1965 in Johannesburg, so kind of in the height of apartheid. 
really. My parents were politically liberal. They believed in one person, one vote in a united South Africa, which today may seem self-evident, but at that time was a minority view amongst white people in the country. And so I lived with, I grew up with a politically liberal home, but also a, what I would describe as a socially conservative one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while I embraced the political liberalism later in life, there were aspects of the social conservatism that I would um, reject. My father was a, a quiet man, an unassuming man, a successful man. He was a medical doctor, quite an empathetic person. And, you know, he was, he ended up being the chief medical officer in the company that he worked for and responsible for building hospitals around the country. He loved travel and the outdoors. So I think I got that from him. My mother was a librarian by training. She always sided with the underdog And she was a very avid reader, a very well-read person. And so that, too, is an influence in my life. And what about siblings? I have one brother, an elder brother, and, yeah, that's it, two of us. So that impact on your values, you say, talk about the social conservatism, but the the liberal values that you embraced. How did that go down in terms of the, the... the school and the peer group that you were hanging out with. I mean, having been to South Africa in the early days after the end of apartheid, I can imagine that that sort of liberalism wasn't a a commonly held set of values. That's right. And, you know, I, I grew up with a pervasive sense of the injustice of the system that we lived in and to question and not accept the status quo. And that did put me at odds with what I heard at school, for example. I remember clearly in 1976 it was, there was a UN resolution that was passed. It would have been condemning the South African government response to the Soweto uprising. And the history teacher was discussing it in class And based on conversations at home, I asked her the question as to what made her think that the rest of the world was wrong, because she was being very critical of the UN resolution. And she got very furious and sent me out the class. And I had to stand outside the class for the whole history period for bringing politics into the classroom, she said. And, you know, I suppose that's one incident that illustrates the disconnect between home and school. The school system that I was in was Christian national education. I went to a local government school, and that was really the apartheid education, which taught conformity. There was very little questioning. Of course, there were some teachers who were exceptional and didn't go along with that. But that was the overarching um, approach of the school. The school also had cadets, which was kind of kids marching around the classroom as a sort of intimation of military service later on. I didn't have to do that because my parents said, no, we're not doing that, which was also unusual. But that also set, you know, that also set me apart from the other kids at school. I definitely felt like an outsider. I felt like I didn't really fit in. 
And kids, of course, pick up on that as well. And what about your brother? Did he sort of echo your sentiment or your values? He did. I th I'm not sure that he felt, you know, I think there are various reasons why I didn't fit in. And I think that in some ways he slotted in easier than I did. But he definitely also shared that sense of, you know, the injustice of the system in which we were living and certainly was influenced by the same values that my parents held. Interesting. Did you, when you describe your parents, when they heard that you were, of that particular incident, that you actually spoke up and you challenged and you took the nonconformist route, did they support you in it? Did they encourage it? Oh, yes. For that kind of thing, they would definitely be supportive, is that they found it contentious that you couldn't have a discussion in a history lesson about what was going on in the country. And so that's sort of... I suppose, an element of intellectual curiosity as well. When you're in a country that must feel like the, the system is totally alien to everything else outside of that environment, how did you feel about where, how you, where your future was going to go at that point? You know, I would, I mean, I think a formative moment for me was getting call-up papers for the military for, uh, for conscription. What age was that? At age 16. So you, were, you got your initial call up at age 16 and then it would be deferred if you were at school and subsequently at university. But I absolutely knew that I wouldn't go to the military at that time. I also made a, a, a speech at school to say that I wouldn't be going to the military and why one shouldn't go to the military, which didn't make me popular at all. I think also I realize in retrospect that for a lot of the, my peers that it was getting their call-up papers was an, a sort of affirmation of a certain kind of masculinity, which was something I absolutely didn't subscribe to at all. And mm -hmm. that also set me apart from my peers at my high school. And my high school was very different from my primary school because I went to a, a private uh, boys-only high school that was modelled very much on the British public school model and, you know, very sports orientated, quite conforming in its own way. Been there, done that. <laughs> okay. So I totally didn't fit in there either. Okay. So where did that inner fortitude come from? Because often in a situation where you're an outside, feeling like an outsider and such, as you say, I'm a very traditional masculine, militaristic orientated environment, that inner will, that inner self-confidence, that sense of self-belief, where did it come from? Because many people would have hidden and would not have stood up. Well, I think I've had a bit, always had a very strong sense of what I think and what I believe. And I think that was bolstered at home. Which is not to say that, you know, being at school wasn't a, a challenge, it was. But I did have a quite a strong conviction about what I believed in from quite an early age. And somehow that was reinforced by feeling like I didn't fit in. How aware were you of the social injustice or the racial injustice around you? Because it sounds like in those environments when you're in a school like that, in, you know, there was clearly there was segregation. How exposed were you to what was happening around you? Well, you know, my brother at that time was at university, so I was also connected through a university world through my brother. 
And that brought a perspective of knowing that there are a lot of people that think very differently. So I think that also bolstered my own sense of my convictions at school. And I also had a very close friendship. My sort of closest friend from childhood, we remained friends through adolescence. And we both had a similar views. And we would sometimes do what at the time were unorthodox things. Like one day we had told our parents we were going to the theater, but actually we both got on a train and went to Soweto to think, okay, well, this is a forbidden place for us to go. Let's go and see. And so that's something that we did in high school. And we kind of had just spent a day there and met up with some people who kind of took us in and put us on a taxi back to the city in the, the afternoon. Wow. So talk to me about that education. What was it like for the young Graham? I mean, you've obviously gone on and had a spectacular academic career. You reached a high level of achievement, both in your master's and your PhD, achieving, receiving a distinction, or what's referred to in Latin as, I believe, cum laude. Yeah. Which few people achieve that level in both MAs or in their, their PhDs. But you did. So early days, were, were your parents aware of the talent and the uh, intellect that you had? And how did that, how was that accepted in that school environment that you describe? You know, I actually didn't really um, thrive at school. I was disinterested in a lot of subjects. I kind of did well in stuff that interested me. But, you know, I, I think that my, yeah, my parents, in fact, were disappointed as, uh, as to my achievements at school. It was only when I went to university that I kind of thrived, actually, which is what some teachers at schools told me that that, that would be the case. Okay, so that that latent ability flourished at university. What were your thoughts at that point when you went to university? Were you, were you, what were you thinking of where your career was going to go? You know, I didn't have a clear sense at all. Clearly not the military. Yes. So that <laughs> it was like the alternative is the military, I do a BA. And so, you know, I did literature, English, African literature. I love doing African literature. It opened up a whole new worlds for me. But I absolutely didn't have a clear sense of a career trajectory. It was more just staying out of the army and doing subjects that I enjoyed. So you did your, you, you graduated from a university in Johannesburg. And right. at that point you, yeah. point, you stayed in South Africa and you started your career. What well, no, you? I actually, the military caught up with me and I left the country. I went to the UK, but I was very fortunate because it was 1988, 1989. So Mandela was released and I came back. Ah, right. I see. Okay. So that was that. Yeah. So that must have been, a re- you must have been rejoicing at that point to seeing an amazing future for the, for the country. Yeah, I was in London the day that Mandela was released. I went to Trafalgar Square outside South Africa House. There was a great celebration there. It was a very moving time. It was, yeah, it was extraordinary, both for it, that it was unexpected and that it was so transformative. Looking at your your CV and what you did, when you went to back to study and do your MA in social anthropology, I think in 1999, your thesis was on this, uh, was 
what many I think many people would consider quite ahead of its time in terms of we describe it as an ethnographic study of the black Pentecostal church on how a church community created the possibility of an integrated cultural identity for gay and lesbian Christians. <laughs> that must have been quite standout at the time. What I mean, there must be a really interesting backstory to that. How did you land on that particular focus for your thesis? And was there, and because we're we we like to explore serendipity in people's journey, was there anything serendipitous about what led you to that? Because that seemed to have set you on a certain path for the rest of your career. That's true. That's true. And yes, I, I would say you know it started. I was. I came across this organization called the Gay and Lesbian Organization of the Witwatersrand, and it was a resolutely anti-apartheid organization and an LGBT rights organization. So it felt to me like a political home. The leader of that organization, Simon and Cordy, was in fact arrested and charged with treason for his anti-apartheid activities. And when he was released, he established this, this organization. And so I had connections to people who also participated in that organization, who also participated in the church. But I was very curious as to why, at the point of political change in South Africa, that this church community was so popular and was growing at a very rapid rate. And it also had a charismatic leader, the Reverend Sietsi Tandakiso, And so I became intrigued and I wanted to know more about why it was that this church was proving to be popular. And so I registered to do a master's degree in anthropology and participated as an atheist in this church community that, you know, I became very, very involved in it through my ethnographic research. And it also introduced me to the, you know, the methodology, the primary methodology of anthropology, participant observation. And I took to that as a duck to water. I thought, okay, well, I've been doing this my whole life. Like an observer, I know I can do this. And so I really loved that approach of immersing oneself in a world And also, you know, to me, the the value of anthropology that I learned through that research was to immerse yourself in an unfamiliar world in order to render your own world strange. And so that seemed to me, you know, that's what I got out of that research, aside from my MA degree. It's very interesting. You describe it as taking to social anthropology like a duck to water, but you must be like a duck out of water with being a white guy in um, a black Pentecostal church and being an atheist. So that in itself, there's a really interesting contradiction there. It was interesting, and I had to navigate that within the church. I mean, you know, I had a lot in common with the participants, although there were a lot of things that also set me apart. But I always used to have... A place marked in my Bible. It, I had a sort of note ET, which was emergency testimony, because <laughs> people were called up to testify, and I was not excluded from that. And so I had like a passage in the Bible that I could read out. And then often what I would do if I was asked to do something like that would just be, you know, to talk about the progress of my research. Uh, so let's jump ahead to your 
PhD. Again, your thesis, another interesting focus. The title is how, how to be a real gay in emerging gay spaces in small town South Africa. Can you elaborate? Sure. So, I mean, again, there was a slightly serendipitous connection between my MA because my external examiner for my MA, Peter Kaskira, who at that time was at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, firstly encouraged me to upgrade my MA and to do some further work and turn it into a PhD, which I didn't want to do. I was kind of done with that. But then I ended up doing a PhD and he became my supervisor. And so How to Be a Real Gay, the title, it's really about how, how we construct identity. And so the title of the thesis came from a series of workshops that an activist who was connected to organizations in Johannesburg decided to run in small towns and rural areas because he said that the gays in those areas were accepted, but they were accepted through a performance of a kind of hyper-femininity. And in his terms, accepted as women and not as gays. And so he wanted to basically teach people how to be like modern gays, real gays. And so he ran a series of workshops. And it seemed to me a very interesting microcosm of the way in which identity is constructed. Anyway, and how it's historically produced and culturally embedded. And so that was the focus of my, my thesis, looking at small town and gay life and gay life in rural areas in South Africa. But you weren't in South Africa at that time. Well, I was. I did all my field work in South Africa, but I was doing it through the University of Amsterdam. But I stayed in a township called Wesselton, which is on the outskirts of Ermelo. I lived in what was called the Gay Palace with the various people um, who were participating in my in the research project. So that, that was over 13, 14 years ago now. That whole area, it's funny, I've never heard anyone talk about identity and identities in terms of in relation to what being the social construct of what gay should be or in terms of any sexual identity or gender identity. How has that changed over the last sort of 10 to 14, 15 years in terms of what, how you can see how the whole LGBTQ community has evolved in terms of identity. Are there any interesting sort of big trends that you've witnessed? You know, what, we, what I was seeing in those small towns was really a intersection between very local ideas about gender. For example, within this community, there was a very clear sense of what was called ladies and gents. So it was a very strong uh, gender differentiation. So the gays who saw themselves as ladies looked for relations with straight men, the gents. And from the gents' point of view, they were having sexual relations with feminine people, whether they were the gays or women. And so it you know, it really made me think about the nature of sexuality and identity in a, in a very different way. And that certainly influenced me in the work that I do, both academically and in the advocacy realm, very profoundly, because it's about, you know, thinking about how identity is produced in different cultural and historical um, contexts. Now, you asked me about the broad trends, 
it's you know it's certainly the case that over the last decades, both in sub-Saharan Africa and globally, there's been a much more visible LGBT rights movement that often speaks in a common language, but that that sometimes papers over the differences in the way in which people think about a sense of self in relation to gender and sexuality, which you know varies considerably across time and place. So we're we're in a fairly pivotal moment, certainly here in the US, but I think it's resonating across the planet, obviously with the the changing government. But there's a ma- we're in a I think we're at a massive sort of trans transitional period in the fight for equality and rights on on every dimension that we're aware of. I mean, obviously the the riots and the protests that have occurred across the uh, the country last year after the murder of George Floyd and some of the other injustices that have happened. But there's also just uh, social gender rights that people are fighting for. I remember last year, I think it was with Seth Godin, I went to see a talk and here in Neuhaus, and he said the people here shouldn't call themselves the resistance, you're the trend. The resistance are the people that are trying to hold back history to where it was. And I think that's true of what's going on just now, that everything's coming into sharp focus and there's huge expectations of changes that might occur in the next couple of years with the new administration coming to the office. Can you give us a sense of the impact of maybe last administration and your hopes uh, moving forward in terms of the ripple effect that might happen around the world? Because clearly we can see this this uh, this polarisation that's occurring around the world. We're seeing you know, the emergence of many strongmen, dictatorships and right-wing reactionary forces at play and yet there's this massive sort of movement a trend towards much more diversity inclusion and acceptance of diversity how what's what's your sense of where we are right now well i mean clearly the trump administration was a disaster for human rights writ large and that included for the rights of lgbt people domestically within the u.s is a direct and systematic attack against transgender rights in particular, and then elevating the idea of religious exemption, um, you know, as a, as a justification for discrimination. And I think one of the things that was emblematic of the Trump period was the Commission on Unalienable Rights that was set up by Mike Pompeo, you know, that really was attempting to set out a kind of hierarchy of rights in which women's rights and LGBT rights were in the bottom rung. So the incoming Biden administration has a lot of work to do just to roll back some of the damage that was done, both domestically, but also that resonated very strongly internationally by sending a kind of signal that human rights abuses would be tolerated, accepted, and with Trump cozying up to the exactly the people that you mentioned, the kind of strong men and leaders that he that he preferred. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to undo that damage. At the same time, there, there's a complicated politics about the US being too vocal over LGBT rights internationally. It can sometimes backfire. And so we always urge that the US and others take their lead from groups and organizations that are working in particular countries who understand the politics, who know what their goals and aims and aspirations are, and, you know, to be supportive, but not to be out front from where activists are in their different country contexts. 
do you think that it's going to, when you talk about the undoing of the damage that's been done, I mean, we all know that the, <laughs> we're only less than two years away from midterms and there is a, this this window of opportunity. Do you think a lot of the, um, the undoing of the damage that's been done is going to take up the bulk of this administration's first term before any real progressive um, changes can take place? Well, I think just getting kind of basic decency back in place and to reestablish norms that have been trampled on in the last period. That's, you know, and also things like immigration policy, the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, that's also, you know, very negatively impacted LGBT people. There's a lot of of that work to be done. So the problem is much more than just the change of administration. Could you talk about the work you're doing with Human Rights Watch around the world, not just in the US, but maybe reflect on some of the the discrimination that's being reported and documented around the world from Uganda to Malaysia, Russia, we all know about, and really how, how or why these nations around the world are providing the permission for abusive activists to to run roughshod against decent human decency or human decency? Well, you know, we have a relatively small program that focuses on LGBT rights within Human Rights Watch. It's a program that's been around for 16 years and there are eight people working around the world. But because it's embedded in a bigger organization of about 500 people, we are able to engage with issues in different parts of the world using and relying on the expertise within the organization that can give us a clear sense of what the political situation in the different countries are that we're working on. So you mentioned, for example, Uganda. You know, it's often the case that anti-LGBT rhetoric is also used as a political strategy. It's used like that in Uganda to distract attention from political challenges, from economic And, you know, similarly in Russia, that Russia has presented itself as the protector of so-called traditional values and has positioned itself globally in alliance with other countries under that umbrella. So I think it's important to see these things in in their political dimension. The kind of work we do at Human Rights Watch is always to partner with organizations that are working in country. So in Uganda, we take our cue from Ugandan organizations. But what we do is to document directly abuses that affect individuals. So our researchers would do direct interviews with the people who are affected by these abuses and then to document those, to draw attention to them with a view to bringing about um, change. Okay. And how are these funded, these activities? Um, All of our work is funded independently. We don't take any government funding and we avoid corporate, any corporate ties in order to retain our independence. So most of our funding comes from individuals. 60% of the funding in the LGBT program comes from individuals and 40% from foundations. Okay, so it's a large philanthropic element to it. That's right. If we stand back and look at the arc of history and where LGBT rights and and what's happened, let's say, over the last uh, uh, 50 to 100 years, and we look back at great seminal moments of change 
through history, like the civil rights movement in the 60s. Where do you think we are at the moment in terms of LGBTQ rights and where will we be? Where do you hope for us to be as a society and a humanity in, let's say, 50 years from now? I think that's always an interesting question. And I think, you know, I think that there will be a much more acceptance of the diversity around gender and sexuality and that people will probably look back aghast at the ways in which, you know, people thought the fact that same-sex relations are still outlawed in some 69 countries. Those kinds of things, I think, will change. It's also probable that some of the certainties that we as advocates and activists hold today will change in the future and people will look back with some puzzlement as we look back at early pioneers in the sexual rights movement that some of the ideas seem today to be somewhat outmoded. So I always think that we need to bear in mind that the certainties of today might not be the certainties for tomorrow and we shouldn't be too adamant about some of the things that we think about. Even the idea of like sexual orientation being intrinsic to the sense of self is a fairly recent idea um, that emerges at a particular point in time. And, you know, maybe that that won't be the case in the future, that that's such a prominent feature of one's sense of who one is in the world. The other thing as well that I struggle with constantly is that we face so many existential threats from climate to nuclear weapons, to the potential risks of what the mishandling of artificial intelligence, leaving aside pandemics, <laughs> if this is just uh, an early warning for us. What, why is it with humanity? Why is something that is we should embrace? Why are there so many societies around the world that there's so, such resistance to diversity and let's say, evolution of gender identity. What's, what is it? Is it religious? Is it fe- what is it, fear-driven? Where is it coming from? Why there isn't acceptance? And I think the way you phrase the question is important because what it's saying is that in the face of these enormous challenges, why be focusing on what seems very trivial in terms of gender and sexuality? And there was a very influential essay written by Gail Rubin, sort of decades ago now, called Thinking Sex. And the point she makes is precisely that, is that it's at those heightened political tension of economic stress, of social disruption, that's precisely at those times when issues of sexuality come to the fore. That's the time when you see moral panics around sex, around the idea of a threat to the family, for instance. And I think that in this period, it's often the case that LGBT rights, LGBT identities are seen to be something new. They often seem to be something foreign. They seem to be a Western import, often associated with modernity. And at a time of social disruption and insecurity, there's this sort of idea of some fantasy of a traditional past or traditional values that is evoked in contrast to what is seen as symbolic of a whole range of changes that people are seeing as disruptive to their lives. Where would you say there are pockets or bubbles uh, where you're seeing real progress being made around the world? I won't mention Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's <laughs> kinds of individual examples, but I think if you look at the, the 
trajectory around LGBT rights. I mean, you know, our work is to focus this, focus on the abuses and challenges that are taking place today, and that's what we document. And so it's easy to lose sight of the fact that enormous progress has been made around the world. You know, just 10 years ago, I think there were 78 countries that outlawed same-sex uh, relations. Now it's 67. So there's, it's definitely going down. There's now an independent expert at the United Nations who focuses on sexual orientation and gender identity. That was unthinkable 10 years ago. Being an educator as well as working in advocacy, if you were handed the keys to, let's say, the White House, what would you do to reorientate education? Accepting that these shifts happen at a generational level, what would you put in place to bring more just general education and acceptance and understanding of diverse identities? Well, firstly, I would have to hand the keys of the White House to someone else because I'm a South African living in the U.S. And so I would <laughs> to them. But what I would tell that person to do would be to do a much more in-depth education around questions of sexuality and gender. And I think that what would be very helpful is to look at it in history and also in cross-cultural perspective to give a really broad understanding of different ways of thinking about sex and thinking about gender at different times and in different places, that that would be a good basis for thinking about these questions at this time. Okay. Where has serendipity played a part across your journey that you could call out? I often feel that I've been in the right place at the right time and that some things have just kind of come together. You know, students sometimes ask me, you know, how did I plan my career trajectory to get where I am today? And I kind of have to make up a story if I want to make up a story that sounds coherent because it's not a really planned story in any by any stretch of the imagination. I am doing exactly what I want to be doing. And so... It is clear that there's been some kind of a trajectory, even if it wasn't a very consciously planned one. You must have a great access to leading thinkers, writers and resources around the whole area of LGBT rights. And where would you point people if they wanted to stay up to date with latest progressive thinking around identity? Well, there I mean, there are a number of a number of. There is a real proliferation of, of research, I think, around gender and sexuality. And so it would be hard for me to pinpoint one particular resource. You know, there's a number of academic resources and then there's a number of sort of advocacy resources that are, that are there's certainly no shortage of material that's, that's, that's available Go to the Human Rights Watch website and to the LGBT program. There's a, there's a start. Okay. What do you think about genetic modification? I mean, obviously, there's, you, get, you can get into some really heated, I hear a lot of heated discussions, particularly around sport, uh, when you listen to certain podcasts around should people be able to compete in sports when there's been some, when someone might have been born as a in male but is then transgender and is then competing in a female category in sport do you think sport needs to evolve as well in terms of categorizations to reflect gender transitions you know what i can speak to in this which is related to your question is 
at Human Rights Watch, we've just done a report on sex testing of, of athletes. And that's athletes who have naturally occurring higher testosterone levels who are singled out and targeted for what is invasive testing to prove whether they're female or not. So, you know... Well, Ka- Ka- Castro is a perfect yes. example, the South Castor's African 800 meters. Yes. yes. Yeah. And as our report shows, is that it's women that are usually are disproportionately targeted and often based on sort of stereotypes of femininity. So that's something we have done research on and where there are clearly human rights abuses that are taking place where women are coerced into undergoing medically unnecessary procedures in order to comply with athletic regulations. Okay, if you maybe send me that uh, link to that report, I'll put it in the show notes. It sounds really interesting. Great, I'll do that. Cool. I'm conscious of our time, so I want to jump to the quickfire questions. What principles do you stand by? Well, I'm a humanist at heart. I've been deeply influenced by liberal values. I respect unconventional thinking. I like to be startled and jolted out of my comfort zone. Okay, (laughs) that's good. Hard choices you've had to make but might have been pretty tough at the time. But when you look back at them, you think, well, that was worthwhile. I think uprooting my life at a certain point, leaving South Africa and starting again in the US, that it was the right decision. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas? I would say books and travel, but now it's just books. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, bring back that travel. If you had to focus on one problem beyond what you spend your time on obviously gender identity and LGBT rights, what other big problem would you is worth solving? Well, I'd say the planet, climate change. It's not going to matter what the laws and policies are if there's not a habitable planet. Yeah, I'd go along with that, totally. If you had a dinner party and you could invite four people, either from current times or from history, to sit down and help you plan for a better future, who would they be? Okay, I'd want to go back into the past and I'd want some sort of big names. I would want, like... I would want a retrospective from the likes of Freud and Marx, but they're too iconic to invite to dinner, so I'd invite their daughters, Eleanor <laughs> and Anna. And from that would African, be, hmm? that would be lively. African perspective, I would want Olive Schreiner to be present, and then also I would invite Havelock Ellis as an early proponent around um, sexual rights. And they would get along because Eleanor Marx... Olive Schreiner and Havelock Ellis knew each other. So, you know, the recipe for good dinner is also to have people to get along with each other. Bring on that technology that allows us to do that. A question no one asks you, but you wish they would. Do you want to go on a date? Well, you maybe just need to get back to the US. <laughs> Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Um, I'd say my sons. Okay. And then the impossible question, advice to maybe some of your students that are people about to study that have dreams, goals, ambitions, but uh, someone negative is telling them, nah, forget it, it's impossible. If people are really saying that it's uh, impossible, then sort of keep your idea to yourself in a few confidants and nurture it until such time as you can realize it. So as not to be too discouraged. Nice. 
we come out of lockdown, the pandemic's behind us. You're going out for karaoke. What's your go-to karaoke song? You will never find me in a karaoke bar. I don't know that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Best recent film documentary series during lockdown? I'd have to say it's been Fleabag. I think it's not that recent, but I only discovered it recently. Yeah. Fleabag series two. Season yeah. two. Yeah. We like to offer listeners that submit uh, good comments in the comment section in Instagram or on the website a book that you would recommend. What would that book be? I would choose selecting from books I read last year because I did a lot of reading last year, but Shaggy Bane, I would say. It's a, it, it's a Scottish author. He just won the Booker Prize. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's beyond all imagining and fantastic read it's wonderful okay we will do that then and finally who should we interview next I think Pelisa Latlaka she's a filmmaker she's a friend of mine since I was 18 years old and she's currently based in DC nice okay we always wait until the episode is live and then we follow up with our guests to make an introduction so we'll be in about two to three weeks time we'll be following up with that so well i'll just wrap up and thank you very much uh, graham i appreciate your time and then sort of the difference in time zone and and just thank you for being an enduring non-conformist and having the the courage and the heart and the humanity to go down the path you've gone and to be fighting for the rights of people that are often unsupported and doing the great work you're doing with Human Rights Watch and really look forward to seeing the progress we make over the next 10, 20, 30 years with you leading that charge. So congratulations and all support behind you and anyone we can connect you with, we will from the network. We like to do that with the Impossible Network of previous guests and we often put them together and see where things go because that's serendipitous as well. And I'll certainly be connecting you with probably Dan because I think you'll appreciate some of the work he's done and his documentation and the photojournalism that he's done. Excellent. So thank you very much and look forward to following up. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Graham. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.